Well, thanks for tuning in to localjobnetwork.com radio. I'm your host, Jacqueline Peterson, and you're listening to Government Compliance, where we take federal contractors and subcontractors through the current trends of affirmative action planning, equal employment opportunity, and Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. And today we have with us expert Sandy Ziegler, a recognized authority on federal EEO enforcement with 25 years of experience divided equally between the EEOC and the OFCCP. Sandy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, we wanted to talk with you because you recently wrote an article about compliance for federal contractors relating to transgender discrimination. Can you just kind of start us off by sharing with us why you believe this is something that federal contractors need to be aware of? Well, you know, I was in receipt of an email, actually, from some former colleagues, where a headline in the email from an article in BuzzFeed said, federal official refuses to say whether office is protecting trans workers, which caught my eye because it was about OFCCP. And mm-hmm. apparently the response was that they follow Title VII. So it seemed to me there were some questions out there, perhaps, that people wanted to have answered about this. And I thought, since they haven't always interpreted the law the way they're interpreting it now, that it might be a time, you know, good time to... Uh, talk a little bit about transgender status and how that fits into Title VII and Executive Order 11246 enforcement. All right. So before we dive into how this could potentially impact federal contractors maybe down the road, can you give our listeners uh, just a definition of the term transgender, just so everyone's on the same page? Uh, And according to, I guess it was the Office of Personnel Management. Yeah, I picked that out because federal government is, you know, they're Personnel rules come from the Office of Personnel Management, so I thought their, the OPM's definition of transgender would probably be uh, acceptable to the government, since the government uses it itself. So transgender, according to OPM, are individuals uh, who have a gender identity that's different from the sex that was assigned to them when they were born. So somebody who was assigned a male sex at birth but identifies as a female is a transgender woman. Uh, likewise, a person assigned the female sex at birth who identifies as a male is a transgender man. And one of the things that OPM points out is that people who are in that category don't always self-identify as transgender. And according to OPM, it, it's not, it doesn't hinge on whether the person self-identifies that way. It's just whether or not the person actually is a person whose basically biological assignment of sex at birth is different from their, their identity as they're going forward. Okay. So, and I know you sort of hit on this earlier when we when we opened about OFCCP saying that it follows Title VII. Are transgendered individuals protected, and in, in, is that under Title VII, or how is it still being determined, or how, where are we with that? Well, the EEOC uh, issued a decision in a case called Mia Macy versus Eric Holder, Attorney General of the Department of Justice, wherein they held clearly that transgender status, discrimination on the basis of transgender status, was, in their view, sex discrimination. So they're the lead agency in the government for interpreting Title VII, and the OFCCP enforces Executive Order 11246, and they're bound to follow the principles under Title VII. So basically, if it's covered by Title VII according to the EEOC, OFCCP should be following suit. Okay. And in this case, Mia Macy versus Holder, can you give our listeners just kind of a summary of what happened and why this information is relevant to contractors as well as the OFCCP? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, they, the, the OFCCP regulates contractors with respect to non-discrimination. So if OFCCP views it as a transgender, as a form of sex discrimination, contractors would be treated 
that way. So if there was a complaint against a contractor alleging discrimination on the basis of transgender status, then OFCCP, at least if they follow EEOC, which they ought to do, uh, would have jurisdiction. Now, the particular case involved a uh, transgender woman. She was a police detective in Phoenix, and she wanted to relocate for personal reasons to San Francisco. And she was told about a position at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives. And she applied for the job. And all the information that she had from the agency was that she was really well qualified and that it was just basically formality of a background check that would be necessary for her to come on board. Now, the thing is, at the time she applied, and when they were saying, yes, she could come on board, she was presenting as a man. She had not yet uh, begun the process of transition from male to female. And so uh, everything looked like it was going to be good until the uh, background check, and she uh, informed the person who was conducting it that she was, you know, in the process of transitioning from male to female and and basically apprised them of her transgender status, and that was communicated to the agency. And after the agency found that out, uh, the job was, she was told the job was no longer available, that it was, you know, had been filled. But then she filed a complaint because she was suspicious about the timing since everything up until then, the fact that she was getting a background check, pointed to the, the fact that she was, in fact, going to be given the job. So when she didn't get the job, she went to file a complaint, and she had several, a couple of parts to the complaint. And initially they told her uh, that you can't file, she checked female uh, you know, as the status and complained of sex discrimination. And the agency said, well, at first they said, no, this isn't cognizable at all in Title VII. Then she uh, went back to them and said, well, you know, I checked female sex, and, you know, that is under Title VII. So they were going to split it up, and the part about the transgender status, they wanted to put in a separate uh, process that the Department of Justice had, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, falling under the Department of Justice, and put uh, the part that read more directly about sex female under Title VII. But that wasn't what she wanted to do because there was a different set of uh, rights you had under the internal process having to do with transgender status and sexual orientation and the like than she would have had under a sex discrimination complaint. So okay. she, uh, what she did was she, she uh, withdrew the part that would have created a question about whether it was covered under sex female without the transgender issue and left it squarely on the issue of transgender status and sex-based stereotypes, so that she basically narrowed the issue to whether or not EEOC actually had jurisdiction to hear a case uh, that was just about gender identity. And the decision it was eventually, I mean, it went on up to the appeals, to uh, federal appeals, because was, she was told that, you know, that there wasn't jurisdiction. And the, uh, the Office of Federal uh, Operations uh, issued a, a decision in the appeal saying, in fact, that transgender status was uh, uh, cognizable, which means that you can, in fact, bring a, cl- a complaint uh, based on transgender status, and it would be considered sex discrimination complaint, even if you're talking g- transgender status and gender identity. So that was the first time, really, that the uh, EEOC articulated this position, and that was in April of 2012. Okay. So transgender discrimination in this case, or in, in probably likely moving forward, transgender discrimination should be handled as as sex discrimination, essentially. Exactly. As it, what the commission said is that it hereby clarifies that claims of discrimination based on transgender status, also referred to as claims of discrimination based on gender identity, are cognizable. So they're very clear that you can bring those kinds of complaints and that they would fall under sex discrimination. 
Okay. In your article, you also write about how the OFCCP should find discrimination in hiring when an offer is, let's say, withdrawn, kind of like in the the Mia Mace. Well, I know they were doing the background with her, but the offer is withdrawn or it's it's not extended due to the applicant's uh, transgender status. Can you go into the case law that was used to kind of help support that and then that was referred to in Macy's case? Sure. Uh, there was a, a case called Schroer versus Billington, a librarian of Congress, and it was a district court case. And what it was a very similar case, actually, in, in a lot of ways to the Macy situation, because you had an applicant who presented as a man. He had not uh, begun to present as a female when he applied for the position. He had a background that was head and shoulders above everybody else. That's at least the way they told him before he uh, apprised him of his status. So what happened was he was uh, applying for a job as a specialist in terrorism and international crime with the uh, the, the Library of Congress. His background had a very high-level uh, military background. He graduated the War College and uh, done all kinds of things, had master's degrees in history, international relations, and the like. So he, and he had 25 years of military service. So he had plenty of background. That wasn't the problem at all. He, he was going to be offered the job. At least that's what they had told him. But he thought that since he was getting ready to make this transition from male to female, that it would be easier if he let them know that he was going to do the transition so that he could start on the job with his identity as Diane Schroer rather than as David Schroer. Mm-hmm. So he arranged to have lunch with one of the people that he had uh, interviewed with to let her know that this is what he was getting ready to do. And he thought everything was going just fine until they uh, withdrew the offer. And they said that basically somebody else was further along in the, the background check status. And then they came up with some other explanations. They were saying his job would uh, they were relying on his military contacts and they were afraid that his transition from male to female was going to cause those uh, contacts that they were hoping him to have to not be viable anymore. They also said, well, he would be uh, having to come before Congress on some of these issues, and they thought that he wouldn't be as persuasive or recept- be received as well uh, because he had, you know, that he was now a she. And then they also raised belatedly a concern that she should have told him up front when they first were interviewing uh, him or her, actually. Uh, and that had never come up even in the lunch when he revealed his transgender status. So everything they kept coming up with, none of it, none of it seemed to be persuasive because all of the information prior to their knowledge uh, had indicated he was far and away the best qualified. And it was only after uh, he uh, revealed that he was in transition to becoming a female that they changed their whole story about uh, hiring him. Now, what that court relied on, uh, one, was the case of Price Waterhouse which talked about sex-based stereotypes. It wasn't a transgender case. The Supreme Court heard that case. One of the complaints that was made about a female who was trying to become a partner was that she wasn't ladylike enough. She didn't. She needs to wear more makeup or you know dress a certain way. And the court held there that sex discrimination doesn't just mean man versus a woman. That if you're denied a job because of sex-based stereotypes, that that's actionable under Title VII. Well, moving from that to transgender status, the whole definition of transgender status has to do with presenting yourself differently than you, the sex you were assigned at birth. So it's basically inherently uh, going to fall within that sex-based stereotype. The other angle that the uh, decisions go is, and, and then Schroer they did, they said we can go that way with the sex-based stereotype and find coverage, but also when you were willing to hire David, you were not willing to hire Diane. So when, when you thought you were hiring a man, you were okay, 
And the same person, now that she's a female, you don't want to hire her, so it's straight-up sex discrimination because you want mm. to hire the man and not the woman. So you wouldn't have to then prove what stereotypes might have been on the mind of the hiring official. You just show that I, was, I had the job until they found out that I was coming in as a woman. Yeah. So those are, that's, that's how they get there, you know, how they get to the, their decision that transgender status falls squarely within sex-based discrimination. Now, one of the reasons why it was such a question for so long is because if you look at the list of things covered, it doesn't specifically say transgender status, just like it doesn't specifically say sexual orientation. But as the case law has evolved over time, and as society basically has evolved over time, uh, I think the commission has, looking more and more, said, well, on its face, uh, uh, we think that what the district court did and some of these other courts that have looked at the issue in finding that this has to be sex based discrimination fits right with the letter of the law. Then the question came up as, well, well, was that what was on people's mind when they passed this law? And they looked at uh, Ancali versus Sundown. It was another Supreme Court case having to do with sexual orientation discrimination. And the court said, really, it's not what, what's critical here is not what the legislatures might have had on their minds, but what they actually passed. And sometimes what they pass is broad enough to encompass like types of discrimination. So they use that, you know, as a, a rebuttal in advance to any argument that the legislative history doesn't suggest this kind of coverage. Okay. Now, just playing the devil's advocate for a moment here, is there really ever an instance where an individual's gender status could possibly be consideration for a job? And if so, when is that? Well, they do have this principle about bona fide occupational qualifications, BFOQ. The idea being there may be some jobs where inherent to the job is that you have to be of a certain gender. I can't really think of too many right off the bat. You used to talk about, say, if you're playing a role in a play, but a lot of people have played roles that are not the gender that they have. So I'm not sure if that would necessarily always be a BFOQ. Uh, There may be some other situations that fall under BFOQ, but frankly, I don't think as much falls under it now as might have been thought to fall under it back in the day. So I'm not really sure what kind of job would necessarily fall under BFOQ, but that's still out there that there's an exception for those rare jobs where you absolutely have to be one gender or the other. Sure. So basically for our federal contractors listening out there, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty much the minority. So just Very keep, much that. So. I, yeah. <laughs> keep that in mind. I, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think there's too many jobs that they have that would fall under that. I, I can't think of any right off the bat. And sure. they should basically assume that it probably doesn't because right. I would think, uh, you know, at this point, there's probably less receptivity to the notion that there's some job that mis- you know, only one gender can do. Right, right. All right. Well, switching gears here a little bit, I want to talk about um, anti-harassment policies you know, obviously we've got federal contractors, subcontractors listening out there. Should employers have um, gender anti-harassment policies similar to they have their sexual harassment policies? And, and if so, how, how should they go about that? Well, I'd, hopefully a lot of them already have gender anti-harassment policies because <laughs> gender harassment is a broader category than sexual harassment. So hopefully they have that. One of the things I, I was thinking about uh, is that People in general may not understand that transgender status falls under sexual discrimination. And since sexual harassment is really a subset of gender discrimination, if they have gender discrimination, uh, prohibition against harassment based on your gender and uh, prohibition, prohibition against harassment based on sexual harassment, then maybe they might want to consider broadening that category or giving some examples of some of the other things that might be covered, including transgender status. Now, there's nothing that compels them to do that as far as I can see at this point. 
Mm-hmm. But because harassment is something that the transgender community often experiences or reports that you know people treat them badly based on the fact that they are, don't match the uh, the stereotypes people have of what men are supposed to be like, what women are supposed to be like, what people are supposed to do, that you know that harassment issue can be very problematic if you have a contractor who hasn't trained it, uh, people or, and has no policy to let them know that that's not acceptable. So just in the airing on the side of caution, it, it couldn't hurt, I think, for a contractor to have include that or make sure people know that that's included under gender uh, discrimination. Now, are there any sort of examples of best practices that they should consider or just be aware of? I mean, even just formalities and and how they engage. Yeah, well, there there are there's some there's a little bit of guidance out there. The OP the OPM piece that I made reference to in the definition of transgender offers a little bit of guidance uh, about how to. Uh, interact appropriately with people who are transgender. One of the things that I hadn't really, you know, thought of, and they had in here that might be ha- helpful for uh, contractors is if you, if the person, say for example, this transgender woman Diane Schroer, she travels as Diane. That's who she identifies with. That's her name now. Her previous name was David. If you kept calling her David and kept using masculine pronouns when you know she's transgender to Diane, at a point it might be viewed as you know harassing, which. Uh, is something that would be specific to a transgender type of situation. The other other types of things I think are to basically, when it comes to jobs and what the what kind of uh, assignments are appropriate and all of these kinds of things, you just want to make sure that you're not factoring in gender in deciding. Like for example, that, that the concern about well, this person can't go in front of Congress because they're transgendered. That shouldn't be a factor. If the if, a, if the job requires you to testify before Congress whether you're transgendered or not, shouldn't enter into whether the employer sends that individual to do that particular task. So I think when it comes to harassment, calling people names, making you know the person uncomfortable by uh, ignoring their transgender status, or even if they're, they maybe they don't want everybody to know they're transgendered, they might have been, had made that transition when they first came in, spreading that around as a rumor. You know, those kinds sure. of things can be problematic uh, if you're a transgender person who basically wants to keep that information to yourself. So those are some of the things that you you need to to look at in terms of harassment. They there've been a uh, a lot of I guess situations when people are first getting used to something they're not familiar with, uh, where they just just treating a person very badly on account of uh, the fact that they don't meet your idea of what a man should be like or what a woman should be like. All right. Now on the flip side, what about um, issues for let's say colleagues, coworkers who are not transgender. Let's say there's issues with, you know, restrooms. Well, a female worker doesn't want to share a restroom with a transgendered woman. What are some ideas or best practices that employers can do to ease that situation? Well, you know, I was looking at, there's a, I guess, a, uh, they had these brown bag lunches at EEOC and they had a panel and they, they actually have it on the internet on their website. When you look up transgender, you can see a recording of this panel discussion and they had some experts on transgender there as well as uh, some of whom were also transgender themselves. And one of the things I learned from looking at that is that the ideal situation from the perspective of uh, the, you know, the transgendered individual is that they go to whatever they view as the appropriate restroom. And one of the things they said is some employers perhaps if they have employees who are very uncomfortable with it, have identified other facilities that the person has a discomfort can go use. But okay. I kind of wonder whether that's going to be uh, viable as a long-term solution because you're still offering an opportunity to be segregated. To me, I'm thinking about when they used to have race-segregated bathrooms. Right. You know, if you were uncomfortable with the integrated bathroom, do you get to go to your only all-white bathroom on the second floor? You know, I don't know how that right. works out as 
non-discrimination. It's a it's an interesting issue because uh, I think we're so used to sex segregated restrooms. That even I mean, even as I'm thinking about it, it's, it's, it creates a certain cognitive dissonance because that's not what you've been experiencing. But the I would think that the numbers of transgender individuals not being that overwhelming that it probably would work out once you got used to the concept. So the best is you can't send you can't send a transgender person to some horrible bathroom that you know the way on some remote location from where they're working, making it difficult for them. It reminds me of the women on the construction sites when they used to not have a restroom that they could use and right. they made going to the bathroom an enormous issue in an effort to keep them from being able to work. Well, that same kind of situation when it comes to transgender, you can't make the, the transgender individual go, you know, way over somewhere very far from where they work and in uh, deplorable conditions because that's, you know, that's another form of, you know, potential harassment uh, argument. So I think you have to make sure that the dignity of the person who who is transgender is maintained, that they're able to use appropriate facilities and they're able to use them near enough to where they work and they're clean and they're not being, uh, you know, put at a disadvantage relative to something as basic as that. Whether or not there's going to be a holding that clarifies exactly how this goes, I'm not sure. Uh, even listen to the EOC uh, panel talk about it. They, their best suggestion was that maybe you have an alternative place for somebody who's really, uh, really uncomfortable with it, but that you wouldn't make the transgendered individual use something other than the main uh, restroom for the appropriate gender that they identify with. So uh, we'll, they- we'll see how that turns out, but I, I think the main thing you've got to make sure is dignified, it's accessible, it's clean, and you're not singling that that individual out for a different treatment. So if that person who has the complaint has the issue with it, then 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 maybe it's best that they use a different facility. That's what they suggested on the on their panel. I, I don't know. Like I said, I'm not sure how viable that is because in right. a way, I mean, how do you how do you say there's a bathroom that you never need to worry about the transgender individual using? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And right. I, right. I, and I think that's kind of that's what they suggested, but I'm not sure that I agree that's going to work. <laughs> All right. Well, you know. to be continued then. <laughs> yes, yeah, so a lot of this is to be continued because uh, they don't have really uh, solid guidance out to right. to make it as clear as it needs to be, perhaps. But hopefully, the uh, agencies will be uh, more clear about some of these issues as time goes on. Well, in regards to, and I know it's still developing, in in regards to uh, record keeping, a lot of federal contractors have to do record keeping, you know, um, solicit for that uh, gender status and whatnot. What should contractors be aware of? Are there any best practices that they should follow in regards to that? Again, this is Sandy's idea of best practice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure the agencies are speaking to it yet, but it seems to me that because the the, the whole, the way the law seems to be trending is to recognize and honor the person's identification with whatever gender they want to identify with. So if you have a person who was assigned male gender at birth, has decided that they, they are that it's better to go through life as a female and they're going to make that transition, or even if they don't make the transition through some kind of medical procedure, they're going to go through life presenting as a female, then it would seem consistent with where the, the law seems to be going that you would record that person in the gender that they identify with. I mean, the whole idea of this is that you're, you're not discriminating against them because they're not conforming to your gender stereotypes, and part of that is how I self-identify. So it would seem to me that if the person comes in, like, for example, Diane Schroer, I would think that the Library of Congress, if, they, if, they had, if she had ultimately worked there, which she didn't, but uh, if she had ultimately taken the job there, would have to be listed as a female. Now, you may have some people who don't present the same way all the time. That's why my suggestion was ask the person, because when it comes to other self-identification People are, are asked where they want to, you know, what, what do they want to be uh, 
put down as. And so people pick, make these choices, and this would be an area I would think such choices could be made. Now, you may have a situation where a person originally is on your roles as a male. Say, for example, the transition took place after you had already hired them, and they're on the transition over to a female. If I was reporting, especially for OFCCP purposes, I would highlight that. So if the, if the last submission I made to the government had this person listed as a male, and had a different name, and then that same person's in the same job but is now a female, I probably would highlight it. And I would think the agency would be then compelled to treat that person uh, as belonging to the gender they self-identify with. All right. Well, do you have any sort of recommendations or best practices or any sort of final thoughts that you might want to share with contractors just to kind of help them thinking ahead as these are kind of sort of still getting worked out? Yeah, well, I think if, you, if you're thinking about the person's transgender status as a factor at all, in making your decision relative to anything having to do with employment, you're probably on the wrong road. Uh, you need to make sure that you're not projecting uh, your thoughts about how this person is going to be received, whether people are going to like them, whether or not they're going to be you know, good team players because your team won't be receptive to them. Remember that when it comes to discrimination, you can't accommodate the discriminatory attitudes of others and find that to be an effective defense. So one of the things is just don't have it on the brain. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> you know, just try, try if, if you find that, because the, the, the woman that got in trouble with the, with the, the Library of Congress decision, she kept thinking, well, you know, these people will do this because of it, and this person will do this over here because of it. And that, that whole thought process was, she was just stuck on the fact that you've got this person who uh, doesn't fit this stereotype. Now, they, they were, uh, you know, this uh, military person and doing all these things that at that time only men were allowed to do. Everybody will know that at one point this had to be a man because how could she have done all these things? Don't let any of that stuff be a factor. It's just about whether the person that's presenting to you, can they or can they not perform the job, not what, uh, not what other prejudices other people might bring to them uh, because they are performing the job. Then the other thing is to maintain dignity. If, uh, you don't want any of your employees to be giving each other a hard time because of anything, really. You want to keep peace in your workplace, and this is one of those areas if people are making fun of somebody or they're writing nasty notes or they're doing other unpleasant things like you know, putting fecal matter on the bathroom door because they know the person's got to use that one. Those kinds of things are unacceptable. It, none, of it's, none of it's okay. And if you're aware of it as an employer, you need to make sure it stops. I think you need to train people because, like I said, for years, people didn't necessarily view transgender status as being a Title VII category that would, you know, be protected because it's not in the list. And the definition of sex discrimination at one point was not read broad enough to cover it. Now it is, or it's at least beginning to be by the, by the district courts and by the agency. So I think you need to make sure that your staff is aware of uh, that as a status and that you need to respect the gender that the person presents as and, uh, and treat them with dignity and that to not do so could get you uh, in a situation where you'll be accused of gender discrimination. So I think a lot of that it would help, especially the training. Because it, 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 a lot of times people do things because they don't know any better. And if they knew better, then maybe they would do better. Yeah. Well, there you have it, everyone. Thank you, Sandy. We appreciate your thoughts about this evolving topic. And this does it for today's show, Government Compliance. Continue listening on localjobnetwork.com radio for your latest employment-related programs. And if you have comments, suggestions, or questions, email us at lganradio at localjobnetwork.com. For Sandy Ziegler, I'm Jacqueline Peterson from localjobnetwork.com radio, and thanks for listening.